Picture this, if you will. A 62-year-old female with a history of diabetes mellitus presents to the urgent care with four days of diarrhea that began on a one-week cruise. She's actually the third cruise patient you've seen with similar symptoms this week. I spend more time in that tiny bathroom than I have anywhere else in my entire life, she complains. She tells you that the diarrhea is getting better now, but she's been feeling increasingly weak and lightheaded. Vitals reveal a blood pressure of 106 over 68 millimeters mercury and a heart rate of 102 beats per minute. Physical exam reveals dry oral mucosa and poor skin turgor. You order a complete blood count, which is unremarkable, and a basic metabolic panel, which reveals a BUN of 41, creatinine of 1.8, bicarbonate of 20, and a blood glucose of 180 milligrams per deciliter. All other electrolytes are within normal limits. When prompted, she says she's been urinating normally. She doesn't have access to the routine lab work drawn by her primary care physician three months ago, but can't remember ever having been told that she has kidney problems. How would you classify the patient's laboratory abnormalities, and what implication does that have on her management? And welcome to AudioBricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing topics from nephrology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this brick, you'll be able to 1. Recall the formal definition of acute kidney injury, or AKI, and how it's typically classified. 2. Describe the clinical presentation of a patient with AKI. 3. Discuss the etiologies of pre-renal, intrarenal, and post-renal AKI, and the complications common to all three categories. 4. Outline the diagnostic workup of AKI, including physical findings, urinalysis, serum tests, and radiologic testing. And 5. Describe the management of AKI. Part 1. What is acute kidney injury? Acute kidney injury, or AKI, is defined as an abrupt decline in renal function. In this context, abrupt means within the last seven days. This is usually detected as a rising serum creatinine concentration, a serum value that serves as a proxy for the rate at which serum filters into the glomerulus, known as the GFR. Less commonly, patients may actually present with a discernible decrease in urine output, Sometimes the kidneys are injured because of intrinsic renal disease or toxicity to the nephrons themselves. But because the renal capillaries lose a large portion of their fluid volume during filtration, they're particularly sensitive to systemic hypotension and hypovolemia. So, acute kidney injury can be caused by a wide range of pathologies, from simple dehydration to severe renal disease. The metabolic consequences of impaired renal function normally only occur when the glomerular filtration rate falls to critically low levels, but the kidney's sensitivity to systemic stressors make it sort of a canary in the coal mine. In general, diseases that cause comorbid AKI are associated with increased morbidity and mortality. In this audio work, I'll talk about the most important features of AKI and discuss a simple strategy that'll help narrow down the list of possible causes when you're faced with a patient with AKI, and most importantly, how to manage them. Now, in the United States, it's estimated that about 1% of all patients admitted to a hospital present with AKI, while between 2 and 5% will develop it during their hospitalization. This percentage rises to a whopping 50% incidence in intensive care unit patients, since many different disease processes that cause serious systemic illness have the potential to injure the kidneys. I'll bet that stat got your attention, huh? But that begs the question, why does a patient's GFR decline so suddenly? Well, friends, 
There are three basic mechanisms that provide the conceptual framework for this very multifaceted disease process. The causes of acute kidney injury can be broadly classified as pre-renal, intra-renal, and post-renal. In pre-renal AKI, there is decreased blood flow perfusing the kidneys. Remember when I said that the kidneys were unusually sensitive to low blood pressure and low blood volume? Well, hypovolemia, hypotension, and shock, acute blockage of the renal arteries, and various states like heart failure and liver failure that cause diversion of blood flow away from the kidneys can all cause acute pre-renal injury. In intrarenal AKI, there's disease in the kidneys themselves, and this encompasses a range of diseases in the glomeruli, the tubules, and the interstitium. In post-renal AKI, obstruction of renal outflow causes a backlog of urine that ultimately impairs the continued filtration of fluid into the glomerulus because of the excessively high tubular pressures. And this can occur anywhere from the renal pelvis all the way down to the urethra. The classification of acute kidney injury by etiology is important since understanding the problem often helps address the underlying cause. Additionally, each type of kidney injury tends to have a specific metabolic profile, which we'll discuss later. But AKI can be classified also by the amount of urine output. Non-oliguric AKI is the most common, where the patient puts out greater than 400 milliliters of urine per day. Oliguric AKI involves urine output between 100 and 400 milliliters per day. And anuric AKI involves less than 100 milliliters of urine output throughout the day. The reason this is important is because of prognosis. Oftentimes, it is possible to resuscitate the kidneys and improve the renal function through a number of interventions, the most important of which is fluid administration. But the lower the urine output, the greater the risk that giving patient fluids is just going to put them into fluid overload and possibly even respiratory failure secondary to pulmonary edema. Moreover, these patients are at higher risk for developing hyperkalemia, the most life-threatening complication of acute kidney injury. All right, pop quiz time. How might an enlarged prostate gland cause AKI? An enlarged prostate gland might cause post-renal AKI by preventing urine outflow, ultimately increasing the pressure in the collecting and tubular systems enough to impair filtration. Part 2. How do patients with AKI present? As I mentioned previously, a patient may present with decreased urine output, which is classified as oliguric or anuric acute kidney injury. These patients may specifically also present with symptoms of volume overload, like peripheral or pulmonary edema. If AKI persists and the GFR drops below around 15, patients may develop uremic symptoms specific to kidney failure, such as confusion secondary to uremic encephalopathy, chest pain secondary to uremic pericarditis, or nausea. The most lethal consequence of critically decreased GFR is hyperkalemia, which itself is usually asymptomatic, but can lead to abrupt arrhythmias and even cardiac arrest. But as a general rule, the rise in serum creatinine that can define AKI is, in and of itself, entirely asymptomatic. It's usually discovered in blood work being done to look for other conditions. Oftentimes, these patients will have symptoms at presentation that relate to the underlying cause of their AKI. For example, a patient may present with vomiting and diarrhea from gastroenteritis that leads to pre-renal AKI secondary to hypovolemia. Or, a patient may present with persistent flank pain secondary to kidney stones that eventually leads to post-renal AKI secondary to obstructive uropathy. Part 3. 
what is the pathophysiology of AKI? We talked about the three main categories of AKI based on etiology. Remind me what those are again? Prerenal, intrarenal, and postrenal, depending on whether the underlying cause is diminished blood flow, damage to the cells of the nephron, or downstream obstruction of the urinary system. Now, we're going to dive into each one of these in a bit more detail. Prerenal AKI is due to decreased perfusion of the kidneys, and like I mentioned earlier, the kidney is unusually sensitive to hypotension and hypovolemia, which is unfortunate, because unlike the GI tract or the skin, for example, the kidneys can't just take a break and not filter serum or make pee. I mean, they control the blood chemistry after all, and that ain't no 9-to-5 job. But despite autoregulatory mechanisms that attempt to preserve filtration, the kidneys are often one of the first organs to suffer functionally during a state of hypoperfusion. Now, clinicians often think of pre-renal AKI as due to volume depletion, and to be fair, this is the most common cause. In that case, it can be quickly corrected with volume repletion. But elevated venous pressures, like in congestive heart failure, can also decrease blood flow through the kidneys. And though edematous states like cirrhosis are often classified as hypervolemic, the intravascular volume is usually low. And both states can lead to prerenal AKI. So without further ado, let's map out the categories of things that can cause prerenal AKI. First, the kidney is particularly sensitive to hypovolemia, which includes dehydration, gastrointestinal losses through vomiting and diarrhea, and hemorrhage. We also mentioned hypotension, which is not necessarily the same thing as hypovolemia, and this is seen in cases of cardiogenic, septic, anaphylactic, and neurogenic shock. There are a few diseases that cause isolated renal artery stenosis, meaning that the kidneys are underperfused despite adequate circulation to the rest of the body. Now, the most common causes of renal artery stenosis are atherosclerosis and fibromuscular dysplasia of the renal arteries, but these usually occur over a long period of time and aren't generally likely to cause AKI. You can, however, get an acute occlusion of the renal artery if a thrombus dislodges from, say, the aorta or the left atrium in the case of AFib. But isolated renal artery stenosis and obstruction creates a very specific syndrome, See, unlike many other etiologies of prerenal AKI, this is associated with hypertension rather than hypotension, because the kidneys, upon sensing the low perfusion, upregulate the entire renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, because those little bean-shaped idiots assume that if they're not getting enough blood flow, nobody is. <laughs> Finally, both heart failure and liver failure can cause prerenal AKI through a complex combination of altered fluid dynamics and impaired autoregulation that screws up renal blood flow despite no true hypovolemia or hypotension. And in both cases, this is usually an ominous sign that involves worsening failure of both organs simultaneously, each problem exacerbating the other. Some drugs can also cause pre-renal AKI by affecting autoregulation in the microcirculation of the nephron. Now remind me, Latin scholars, what are the arterioles that lead to and from the glomerulus called? And most importantly, which is which? The afferent arteriole leads to the glomerulus, like you admit a patient to the hospital, because ad means to. The efferent arteriole leads away from the glomerulus, like an exit or egress is how you get away from somewhere, because X means away from. Okay, now that we know which is which, you'll be able to visualize this better. Like I mentioned, if the blood pressure or volume start to decrease, 
The kidneys make every attempt to continue to process a roughly stable amount of plasma per hour, meaning that they need to maintain the glomerular filtration rate. If less blood is circulating, renal autoregulation can do two things. First, like the heart and the brain, they can dilate the afferent arterial coming at the glomerulus, increasing the amount of blood flowing through the kidneys per minute. But they can also constrict the efferent arterioles exiting the glomerulus. And now tell me, if it's easier for blood to flow towards the glomerulus, but harder for blood to leave, well, where's all that fluid going to go? If the efferent arteriole constricts, less plasma can continue through the efferent arteriole, so more plasma has to squeeze into the Bowman's capsule and enter the tubular system. So if dilating the afferent arteriole and constricting the efferent arteriole increase the GFR, it stands to reason that constricting the afferent arteriole and dilating the efferent arteriole will decrease the GFR, which is basically what defines acute kidney injury. Afferent constriction can occur with possibly the most famous category of nephrotoxic medications, the nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or the NSAIDs, which block the vasodilating effects of prostaglandins. They can also occur with calcineurin inhibitors, cyclosporine, and tacrolimus, which is used to suppress the immune system. Efferent dilation can occur with the angiotensin-converting enzyme, or ACE, inhibitors. And all of these drugs can lead to pre-renal kidney failure, and what's more, their effects are often additive when used in a patient with another disease state that also causes pre-renal AKI. Now, I want to go back to that hypothetical scenario that I used to illustrate the difference between afferent and efferent, where I mentioned that in states of hypotension and hypovolemia, the kidney tries to maintain the GFR, even when the blood flow is scarce, by effectively squeezing more fluid into the tubular system and allowing less fluid to continue through the efferent arteriole. And maybe some of you see the problem with this, because the efferent arteriole is also what provides the blood supply for the whole nephron. Basically, to maintain the GFR, the nephron has to sacrifice its own blood supply, especially during times when there wasn't enough blood flow to begin with. And now you understand why the kidney is unusually sensitive to hypotension and hypovolemia, and is one of the first organs to suffer ischemic damage in shock states. Now, this not only explains the most common mechanism of intrarenal AKI, but also explains why there is so much overlap between pre-renal and intrarenal AKI. See, the most common cause of intrarenal AKI is acute tubular necrosis, or ATN, which is, as the name suggests, the death and necrosis of renal tubular cells. The other major cause of ATN is exposure of the tubules to directly nephrotoxic substances, and there are a whole bunch of these. These include some of our most powerful antibiotics, like vancomycin, aminoglycosides, and amphotericin, as well as the ubiquitous iodinated contrast agents used in CTs and angiography, though to be fair, with new agents, the risk is lower. And the nephrotoxic effects of myoglobin are how patients with rhabdomyolysis develop acute kidney injury. But very commonly, pre-renal causes of AKI, like shock and sepsis, can easily lead to ischemia in the pressure and volume-sensitive kidneys that ultimately leads to the necrosis of the tubular cells. But even still, you may be asking yourself, with so much overlap in the etiology of pre-renal AKI and acute tubular necrosis, which is intrarenal, how do you even tell the difference? And is it actually important? Well, the verdict is a bit split, but here's the textbook answer. 
In pre-renal AKI, the rate of filtration from the glomerular capillaries into the Bowman's capsule is inadequate, usually due to a lack of renal blood flow, but there's nothing explicitly wrong with the tubular cells themselves. In intrarenal AKI, it's the tubular cells themselves that are problematic. In most cases, the cells of the renal medulla necrose, as they're the ones with the weakest perfusion to begin with. In these cases, the initial filtration of plasma from the glomerulus into the Bowman's capsule is normal, but since the necrotic medullary portions of the tubule basically have holes punched in them, fluid leaks back into the interstitium, and eventually the bloodstream, in a totally unregulated manner. And this appears on labs as a decreased effective GFR, because the amount that leaks back into the interstitium effectively never got filtered. The situation gets worse if the necrotic tubular cells slough off and block up the nephron, leaving nowhere for the filtrate to go but back into the body. So, the most common cause of intrarenal AKI is acute tubular necrosis, by a wide margin. But other causes include inflammatory diseases of both the glomerulus and the interstitium, like lupus nephritis and acute interstitial nephritis. Rarely you can have microembolic phenomena like cholesterol emboli from plaques that are disrupted during vascular procedures. Now, it's more likely that these diseases will cause a slow decline in GFR, but it is possible that aggressive inflammatory diseases like rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis can cause acute kidney injury. The final category of acute kidney injury is post-renal AKI, in which renal function is impaired because urinary outflow is obstructed. Urine backs up, increasing the pressure in the tubular system and making it harder for plasma to filter into the Bowman's capsule. Now, in theory, the obstruction can be anywhere, from the renal collecting system down to the urethra. But it's worth remembering that just one well-functioning kidney can normally increase its filtration to compensate for the obstruction of the other. So, obstructions of the upper urinary tract, basically the renal collecting system and the ureters, are less likely to cause significant impairment to renal function than obstructions from the bladder to the distal urethra, or the lower urinary tract, because those block outflow from both kidneys rather than just one. Now in men, the most common cause of lower urinary obstruction is benign prostatic hyperplasia. In both men and women, cancers commonly obstruct the urethra, most commonly prostate cancer in men and cervical cancer in women. Though any urologic, gynecologic, or colorectal cancer large and invasive enough can eventually obstruct the urethra. Infections like prostatitis, cystitis, and urethritis can cause inflammation that obstructs urethral outflow. And both cystitis and urologic cancers can lead to clot hematuria, bleeding into the bladder that's severe enough to actually clot instead of simply diluting into the urine and turning it pinkish. And these clots can actually obstruct bladder outflow. In pediatric patients, congenital abnormalities must be considered, especially posterior urethral valves in males. Finally, neurologic disorders of bladder outflow can cause impaired contraction of the bladder's detrusor muscle. And this commonly occurs not only with neurologic lesions like strokes and spinal cord lesions that you might expect, but also with uncontrolled diabetes, which leads to impaired detrusor function via autonomic neuropathy. While upper urinary obstruction, i.e. from the collecting system to the ureters, is a less common cause of obstructive AKI, disorders like kidney stones and retroperitoneal metastases are common enough to where they should be on the differential diagnosis. Unilateral upper urinary obstruction may cause measurably decreased GFR, especially if the patient's baseline renal function is either low or borderline. 
Now, I told you the textbook distinctions between the mechanisms of pre-renal, intrarenal, and post-renal AKI. But it's worth reminding you again that in real life, the distinctions usually aren't as clear. Prolonged renal hypoperfusion may impair the GFR initially through pre-renal mechanisms, but eventually, the ischemia to the tubules will cause acute tubular necrosis, an intrarenal etiology of AKI. Similarly, prolonged urinary obstruction can cause interstitial fibrosis or inflammation, at which point the patient's AKI is caused by both postrenal and intrarenal mechanisms. Keep this in mind as we discuss diagnosis and management. Part 4. How do we diagnose AKI? Acute kidney injury is impaired renal function, diagnosed by a worsening glomerular filtration rate, or GFR. What this means in practical terms is an acutely rising serum creatinine, which is a molecule that's filtered, but not significantly reabsorbed or secreted. Serum creatinine is generally ordered as a part of the basic or comprehensive metabolic panel, and that's a test that's ordered on basically every patient who gets routine or acute lab work done which also means that acute kidney injury is usually diagnosed based on commonly ordered lab work rather than suspicions based on their clinical symptoms. The blood urea nitrogen, or BUN, is also ordered as a part of this lab work. And while an elevation in BUN is not part of the diagnostic criteria of AKI, both of them will generally be elevated in tandem. Now, there are three criteria that clearly define what constitutes acute impairment. One, a serum creatinine increase of at least 0.3 milligrams per deciliter within 48 hours, or two, greater than 1.5 times the baseline value within one week, and three, urine volume that is less than 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour for at least six hours. The final criterion does not require measurement of serum creatinine, though it is less sensitive than the other two. <laughs> now, here's the problem. As an emergency physician, I'm constantly seeing patients for the first time. The third criterion is very useful if there's been an acute event that's anticipated to cause AKI, like hemorrhage from trauma, a severe burn, or a crush injury leading to rhabdomyolysis. But the other two can be problematic, since I rarely have lab results from less than a week ago, to say nothing about 48 hours ago. If all I have is a single serum creatinine level higher than normal, which is 1.4 in men or 1.1 in women, all I can say is that it reflects an abnormal estimated glomerular filtration rate. I can't say anything about the acuity, unless I know what their creatinine normally is. And while it's helpful to know how a patient's serum creatinine compares to their baseline from, let's say, three months ago, even a significantly higher creatinine than baseline doesn't definitively diagnose the increase as acute kidney injury, unless I can prove that it's happened within the last week at least. The decline in kidney function may be chronic or subacute, depending on how long ago the most recent labs were drawn. And I'm not the only one with this problem, by the way. Available comparison labs are also rarely recent enough to diagnose AKI in the outpatient setting, especially when you consider that even patients with medical comorbidities only get labs drawn a few times a year. So these criteria are most useful during a hospital admission, where daily labs are generally obtained. If you work in the emergency department or the outpatient setting, the diagnosis of acute kidney injury is generally presumptive, which is fancy medicalese for a guess, because you don't actually have enough information to make the diagnosis conclusively. But an important part of this is clinical context. 
If a patient has an acute illness within the last 48 hours to a week that is known to cause renal hypoperfusion or had a known nephrotoxic exposure, it's more likely that a high serum creatinine actually represents AKI. The main diagnostic dilemma occurs when trying to distinguish acute from chronic kidney disease, and it's important because acute kidney injury is potentially reversible and therefore warrants a more aggressive workup and treatment. When you have no prior laboratory data, as I often don't, discovering a high serum creatinine without a convincing clinical explanation for AKI can be problematic. So here's some of the factors that go into my fancy medical guesswork. In patients who are young or otherwise healthy, a high serum creatinine is less likely the result of chronic kidney disease and more likely to be an acute or subacute process. Though you got to remember with this, more muscle mass generates serum creatinine at a higher rate. So a beefy college football player with a slightly higher than normal creatinine level may not actually have a problem at all. Conversely, in patients with known chronic kidney disease, it's helpful to know what their most recent creatinine values have been. Even if you don't have data from the last two to seven days, the presence of an acute illness or a more substantial deviation from baseline suggests that something acute or subacute is happening on top of their existing renal disease. We call this acute on chronic kidney injury, and if there's the presence of an acute component, that needs to be aggressively worked up and treated. Finally, in patients who have no history of chronic kidney disease or who are simply poor historians but do have risk factors like hypertension and diabetes, it's often difficult to determine whether an elevated creatinine is acute or chronic when there's not really a good clinical circumstance that might cause AKI. In these patients, a renal ultrasound may sometimes be helpful. Most types of AKI will have normal renal parenchyma on the ultrasound, while advanced chronic kidney disease will typically show small or echogenic kidneys with the renal cortex and medulla appearing kind of a more uniform shade of gray, reflecting advanced fibrosis of the renal interstitium. Unfortunately, while this may tell you whether or not a patient has advanced CKD, the presence of CKD doesn't exclude a coexisting acute kidney injury. Therefore, most of these patients are ultimately worked up for possible causes of AKI. Additional lab tests for evaluating the specific etiology of AKI include not only the basic and comprehensive metabolic panels, but also magnesium and phosphate levels, urinalysis with microscopy, and urine chemistries. The most important initial goal of a workup for AKI is to assess for pre-renal and post-renal AKI, because these are often quickly reversible. Fortunately, etiologies of pre-renal and post-renal AKI often have a fairly obvious clinical presentation. With patients experiencing acute hemorrhage, sepsis, and other types of shock, the onset of the illness isn't usually subtle or indolent, so a high creatinine can often be presumed to represent AKI. These patients may have physical findings of volume depletion, like orthostatic hypotension or poor skin turgor, or they may have symptoms of heart failure, like edema, dyspnea, and crackles at the base of the lungs. Dehydration may clearly be acute, like if a patient had prolonged heat exposure or exertion, or if they had vomiting or diarrhea. But in elderly patients with dementia who aren't able to access water independently and can't provide a reliable history, the acuity may actually be uncertain. With post-renal AKI, fortunately, the acuity of symptoms is usually pretty apparent. Simply put, urinary obstruction hurts. A lot. I mean, just ask anyone who's had a kidney stone, or someone whose benign prostatic hyperplasia has made it so that they can't urinate for eight hours. They're going to be screaming. 
And if the symptoms of urinary obstruction are accompanied by an elevated creatinine, it's often safest to assume that the urinary obstruction may have caused acute kidney injury in the absence of recent labs. Serum and urine chemistries are especially useful in identifying patients with a major pre-renal component of AKI. Now think back to what I said about renal autoregulation. Try not to get too excited. In states of hypovolemia and hypotension, where renal perfusion is low, the kidney still attempts to maintain filtration to ensure adequate plasma homeostasis. But since low renal blood flow generally means inadequate systemic blood flow as well, the kidneys will then have to aggressively reabsorb sodium and water from the filtrate. And this results in decreased urine output, not just in terms of volume, but of sodium as well. So, the urine chemistries in patients with pre-renal AKI will generally reveal low urine sodium, less than 20 ml equivalents per liter, but the more specific test is the fractional excretion of sodium, or FINA, which answers the question, what percent of the sodium filtered from the plasma into the tubule actually makes it out into the urine? And the calculation, without getting too in the weeds, is the urine sodium concentration divided by the serum sodium times the serum creatinine concentration divided by the urine creatinine. But more to the point, do you think patients with pre-renal AKI excrete a large percentage of the sodium they filter, or do they reabsorb most of it? They reabsorb most of it, of course. So, patients with pre-renal AKI typically have a low FINA, less than 1%. The problem is, this involves obtaining urine chemistries at the same time as serum chemistries, so it can be a little bit of a pain in the butt. But there is a quick approximation to tell if a patient likely has pre-renal AKI. Because tubular absorption of urea is coupled to the sodium reabsorption, pre-renal patients who reabsorb most of their filtered sodium also end up reabsorbing large amounts of urea, leading to blood urea nitrogen, or BUN levels, that are elevated out of proportion to the creatinine, typically to a serum BUN to creatinine ratio greater than 20. Now, none of these tests is perfect, and this includes the FINA, which can be affected by dietary sodium and diuretics that interfere with sodium reabsorption. You have to treat most of these tests for pre-renal AKI as additional supportive data points in conjunction with the clinical picture. So, moving on to post-renal AKI. The bad news is that serum and urine chemistries don't follow a reliable pattern in post-renal AKI that distinguishes them from pre-renal and intra-renal AKI. The urinalysis may reveal blood, but since that can occur with kidney stones, infections, tumors, and even BPH, that doesn't really narrow down the problem. Some patients with renal stones will also have crystals, basically microscopic precipitates of the same variety that created the stone, like calcium oxalate or struvite, but the urinalysis isn't really sensitive enough to be reliably used for this purpose. The good news is that, one, urinary obstruction, especially acute urinary obstruction, generally causes very obvious and highly painful symptoms. It's not subtle. And two, because obstruction of the urinary system occurs on a macroscopic scale, imaging studies can be very helpful. The mainstay diagnostic test for post-renal AKI is ultrasonography. It's quick, it can be performed at bedside, and it avoids the use of contrast dye, which can exacerbate AKI. To diagnose lower urinary obstruction, the simplest form is the automated bladder scanner, a highly simplified ultrasound used by nurses to measure the bladder volume. But bedside ultrasound measurement of bladder volume is also commonly performed by non-radiologist physicians, including myself. 
If a patient has more than 300 cc's of urine in the bladder immediately after trying to urinate, they likely have clinically significant urinary retention, requiring catheterization. Bladder ultrasound can also visualize dependent clots or stones in the bladder, which appear more dense than the surrounding urine. Obstructed urinary outflow can also result in a swollen and dilated renal collecting system, otherwise known as hydronephrosis. This usually occurs unilaterally with obstruction of the ureters, as in a kidney stone, but in severe prolonged cases of lower urinary obstruction, bilateral hydronephrosis can develop as well. On ultrasound, urine appears dark black, like all other simple fluid, and the dilated renal pelvis and calyces sort of look like a black bear paw stomping on the gray kidney. Except, you know, instead of bear fingers, it's pee. Finally, CT of the abdomen and pelvis is especially beneficial in the workup of ureteral obstruction, as they can assess the size and location of a kidney stone better than ultrasound, and can more comprehensively assess the region for cancer and metastases that are causing ureteral obstruction. Alright, let's get to intrarenal AKI. So we talked a bit about the fractional excretion of sodium, and despite the imperfections in this test, it is very helpful in distinguishing pre-renal AKI from acute tubular necrosis. Because the tubules are damaged in ATN, there's poor sodium reabsorption, resulting in increased urinary sodium excretion in contrast to pre-renal AKI. The urine sodium concentration is typically greater than 40 milliequivalents per liter, and the phena is generally greater than 2%. And while it may seem like the phena is only good for a very limited set of etiologies of AKI, consider that together, pre-renal AKI and acute tubular necrosis account for about 70% of cases of acute kidney injury. But if pre-renal AKI is best assessed by the serum and urine chemistries, and post-renal AKI is best assessed with radiographic imaging, probably the most helpful test in the workup of intrarenal AKI is urine microscopy, which can help distinguish between several different types of intrinsic renal disorder. The most common type of intrarenal disease is acute tubular necrosis, in which renal tubular epithelial cells die and slough off into the renal tubules. And the hallmarks of this necrosis are fried egg-shaped epithelial cells and granular casts that are visible on urine microscopy. Now, if you're wondering what's up with the term fried egg cell, because, you know, it's not like pathologists ever think of dumb names for things or anything, that refers to the relative amounts of cytoplasm versus nucleus that you should expect to see on a sloughed transitional cell, the cell type found in most of the urinary tract. It should be roughly the same size as the ratio of yolk to white that you see when you're frying an egg. And the reason this is a relevant comparison is because the most common cell types that you have to distinguish these from are white blood cells, which are basically all nucleus, squamous cells from the distal urethra, which have tiny nuclei and huge squared-off cytoplasms, and red blood cells, which have no nucleus and are red, obviously. But when debris accumulates in the crowded renal tubules, sloughed cells, bits of cells, etc., they form casts, microscopic cylindrical structures that always imply pathology in the renal interstitium itself. In acute tubular necrosis, the sloughed epithelial cells form these coarsely granular, muddy brown casts. In contrast, urine microscopy in acute interstitial nephritis may show increased white blood cells and white cell casts, secondary to the inflammation that basically defines the disease. The white blood cell casts are clear instead of muddy brown, and sometimes actually will have distinguishable white blood cells embedded within them. 
Finally, in many types of glomerulonephritis, especially rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis, these are associated with increased bleeding into the tubular system, secondary to disruption of the glomerular capillaries. This results in hematuria and red cell casts, which are basically exactly what they sound like. It's worth noting that in intrinsic renal disease, hematuria is further characterized by the presence of dysmorphic red blood cells on microscopy that look kind of like shredded up from their journey squeezing through the tubule. It's interesting because you don't typically see dysmorphic red cells or red cell casts in bleeding from the ureters to the bladder, where there's a lot more space for the blood cells to pass through. So that covers the formal diagnosis of acute kidney injury. But for all three classes of AKI, the basic metabolic panel contains information besides the BUN and creatinine that you definitely need to pay attention to. Hyperkalemia and metabolic acidosis can occur during AKI due to impaired renal excretion of potassium and organic acids, especially urea. Uremia can lead to encephalopathy, arrhythmias, and other metabolic derangements associated with acute acidemia, and the development of pericardial and pleural effusions is specifically associated with elevated serum uric acid. Hyperkalemia is the most feared metabolic abnormality in both acute kidney injury and chronic kidney disease for the abruptly lethal cardiac arrhythmias it causes, often with very few prodromal warning signs. Finally, volume overload leading to pulmonary edema is a potentially dangerous complication, especially of oliguric and anuric AKI that can lead to respiratory failure. And while bilateral airspace opacities, cardiomegaly on chest x-ray, or an elevated BNP will provide supportive diagnostic evidence of volume overload, your assessment and treatment should be guided by your clinical evaluation of a patient's respiratory distress and oxygen saturation. Part 5. How do we manage AKI? The management of AKI consists of first identifying and correcting the underlying cause, while minimizing the use of nephrotoxic drugs. Remind me what some of those are again. Some of the most common ones include NSAIDs, ACE inhibitors, calcineurin inhibitors, aminoglycosides, vancomycin, and iodinated contrast. Identifying suspected pre-renal and post-renal AKI is especially a priority, since the renal impairment is generally reversible if treated promptly. Patients with pre-renal AKI need volume repletion with IV crystalloid fluids, or blood if the kidney failure is caused by hemorrhage. The one exception is in patients whose AKI is potentially caused by heart failure. In these cases, oxygen and respiratory support takes priority. The cardiac preload should be brought closer to the heart's ability to tolerate preload, primarily with nitroglycerin if the patient's blood pressure can tolerate it, and primarily with inotropic agents like dobutamine, if a patient is approaching cardiogenic shock. Diuretics will be commonly required in patients with heart failure, though this does risk exacerbating the AKI. Patients with post-renal AKI typically require mechanical removal or bypass of the urinary obstruction. In most cases, this is as simple as a Foley catheter, since the most common cause of post-renal AKI is obstruction of the urethra or the bladder outlet. In cases of severe anatomic distortion of the urethra, like with cancer, suprapubic catheterization allows relief of the obstruction that actually bypasses the urethra. Now, obstruction of the ureters can be relieved, especially a kidney stone. It can either be done with shockwave lithotripsy to break up the stone and or cystoscopic basket removal. More commonly, though, a ureteral obstruction is simply bypassed, 
either with a stent that runs through the ureter from the renal pelvis to the bladder, or with a percutaneous nephrostomy tube inserted through the muscles of the back into the renal pelvis under image guidance. It's important to remember that the initial diagnosis of acute kidney injury is usually presumptive, since laboratory data from the last week is unavailable in most clinical settings. However, the suspicion of pre-renal or post-renal acute kidney injury is supported if treating the underlying cause leads to improvement in kidney function over the next days. The treatment of intrarenal AKI, unfortunately, is not always so formulaic, as the different causes of AKI may need markedly different treatments, from immunosuppressive therapy in rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis to anticoagulation in embolic disease. It is worth mentioning, however, that acute tubular necrosis is by far the most common cause of intrarenal AKI. But while renal hypoperfusion, which is the etiology of pre-renal AKI, also eventually leads to ATN in a majority of cases, acute tubular necrosis does not actually respond as well to empiric volume resuscitation as pre-renal AKI, as the tubular cells are already necrotic. The key in patients suspected to have ATN rather than pre-renal AKI is to optimize rather than empirically augment the patient's volume status, which requires a combination of clinical assessment and diagnostic testing. And remind me again, what chemistry values distinguish pre-renal AKI from ATN? Urinary sodium less than 20 suggests pre-renal AKI, greater than 40 suggests ATN. And the fractional excretion of sodium, or phena, is generally less than 1% in pre-renal AKI and greater than 2% in ATN. But regardless of cause, patients who do not respond to these initial treatments and who remain oliguric are first treated conservatively with low-potassium diets and controlled fluid administration. Diuretics need to be used with caution, as they can actually worsen pre-renal AKI, so these should be reserved for patients with clear volume overload, especially pulmonary edema. Last point on management. While acute kidney injury can frequently resolve with treatment, there are metabolic abnormalities caused by AKI that need to be fixed immediately and can't wait for the kidney function to just slowly recover. Specifically, metabolic acidosis with a pH less than 7.1, hyperkalemia greater than 6.5 milliequivalents per deciliter or refractory to treatment, respiratory failure secondary to volume overload, and suspected uremic pericarditis or encephalopathy. These are all potentially life-threatening and require the initiation of emergent hemodialysis. And even though a lot of people think that dialysis is associated with permanent end-stage renal disease, a large central venous catheter can be used for temporary dialysis. That way, the life-threatening metabolic problem can be quickly fixed while the kidneys are still recovering. And ideally, the catheter can be removed once the kidneys are able to function properly on their own. And that's a wrap. Let's review what you learned about the huge, all-encompassing topic of acute kidney injury. First, can you formally define acute kidney injury? Acute kidney injury is an abrupt decline in renal function measured by either an acute drop in the glomerular filtration rate or the urine output. By definition, AKI is diagnosed when the serum creatinine rises by at least 0.3 mg per deciliter over 48 hours, or rises to at least 1.5 times the patient's baseline value within a week. In the very acute setting, 
AKI can also be di defined by a urine output of less than 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour for at least six hours. In many practice settings outside of a hospital admission, however, labs from between two and seven days prior are often not available, and the diagnosis must often be made presumptively. The diagnosis can be supported, then, if treatment of the supposed underlying cause results in an improvement of the estimated GFR. Second, what are three classifications of acute kidney injury by etiology? AKI is classified as pre-renal, intrarenal, or post-renal, depending on whether the impairment in renal function is due to poor renal perfusion, disease intrinsic to the renal parenchyma, or obstruction of urine outflow. The most common etiologies of AKI are acute tubular necrosis, a type of intrarenal AKI, followed by the various etiologies of pre-renal AKI. And in both cases, things like shock or sepsis that decrease the renal perfusion are the most common contributing factor, as the kidneys are unusually sensitive to hypoperfusion. Third, what diagnostic testing is most helpful in evaluating pre-renal versus intrarenal versus post-renal AKI? Serum and urine chemistries, while not perfect, are the most helpful diagnostic tests in distinguishing pre-renal AKI from the most common cause of AKI, acute tubular necrosis. In addition to the serum and urine chemistries, the specific etiology of intrarenal AKI can be evaluated by urine microscopy, with cylindrical cell casts being diagnostic of an intrinsic renal disease. Finally, post-renal AKI can be best evaluated using radiographic imaging, which can determine both the level and nature of the urinary obstruction. Now, armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to that patient from the beginning of the episode. A 62-year-old female is found to have a BUN of 41, creatinine of 1.8, and bicarbonate of 20 in the context of four days of diarrhea and recent dizziness and weakness. How would you classify the patient's laboratory abnormalities, and what implication does that have on her management? Your patient's creatinine of 1.8 is substantially higher than expected for a woman of her age, actually over 50% higher. And while you don't truly know how this compares to her usual serum creatinine, the higher than normal creatinine in the clinical context of an acute diarrheal illness and signs of dehydration make a strong case for pre-renal acute kidney injury, which is corroborated by the classic BUN to creatinine ratio greater than 20 to 1. The patient's mild metabolic acidosis is easily attributable to her elevated BUN, and you recognize that pre-renal AKI is very treatable if promptly addressed. So you administer two liters of IV normal saline to replete her intravascular volume with the goal of improving perfusion to her kidneys. Your patient feels much better, and you discharge her after instructing her to drink plenty of water. Despite mixed opinions from clinicians, you prescribe the antidiarrheal loperamide, reasoning that in this case, it's medically important to limit the water losses that cause the patient to suffer from end organ damage. Before you leave, you print out her labs and instruct her to see her primary care physician within the next two days for repeat lab work. He'll want to know what we found today, you tell her, and to see if we're on the right track with our treatment. And that is our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. 
You can enjoy the full Bricks experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends.